Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to today's edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We are going to talk about affordable housing today, which is particularly a crucial issue in the city of Atlanta and in some of Metro Atlanta, but also has implications for cities in other parts of the state of Georgia. When the Atlanta Constitution did a uh, its, its first and so far only poll, although I think they have a new one coming, of the Atlanta mayor's race. The number one issue that they identif- identified among those surveyed, of course, was a crime in, in the city. Uh, but number two was affordable housing. People who responded to their poll said they think that Atlanta is being uh, uh, increasingly uh, taken over by people of means, people who have a good amount of money, uh, and forcing those who uh, are, are not as wealthy out of the market. And I think one of the important in, in, in numbers to look at in that respect is the fact that among cities of, I think it's a quarter of a million people or more, Atlanta is number one in the nation in income inequality. And that is all a part of this question as to whether developers who are gobbling up many properties around the city are uh, uh, leading to uh, gentrification, more expensive housing, and forcing people of lesser means out. We're going to talk about all that and how uh, a group of individuals and organizations are working to change that equation on today's show. Uh, It's Thursday, which means my partner on the show is Kevin Riley, the editor, the boss of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How are you, Kevin? I'm well, and good morning, Bill. It's uh, great to be here for this discussion this morning, which I think will be really a good one. Yeah, uh, by the way, uh, I said that the uh, your poll showed that violence, gun violence particularly, was the number one issue in the mayor's poll. You, in fact, are going to be involved later this afternoon in a forum with the mayoral candidates in which you're going to ask them about their plans for dealing with uh, violence. It's sponsored by St. Luke's Church, and it can be streamed on their website. Our good friend and occasional panelist on this show, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, is a part of that as well, right? Yeah, the church uh, put this together. Uh, they've been planning it for some time, and I think it'll be a very, very interesting conversation. And uh, people can find it online at the church's website if they like to uh, stream it. Uh, Speaking of forums, um, mayoral forums, another one of our panelists today is Sarah Kirsch, who is the executive director of the Urban Land Institute, ULI, in Atlanta. Uh, Sarah, you tomorrow morning are sponsoring uh, Mayor's Forum. Uh, I assume that one of the issues, but not all of the only issue, will be affordable housing, yes? That's correct. It was the dominant issue four years ago, and I expect it will be one of the the primary areas of focus tomorrow. Uh, Give us a quick uh, 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 description of what uh, ULI Atlanta is uh, all about. What is your mission? Sure. The Urban Land Institute is focused on shaping the future of cities with transformative impact worldwide. We do that by connecting 
our members by trying to inspire best practices among real estate professionals and leading on issues facing cities. Um, it will not surprise you when we talk about issues facing cities, uh, housing affordability is, is top of the list. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you for that. Um, let me bring in Bill Bolding next. And, and the reason I want to bring in Bill now is, Bill, you basically are the reason that we're doing this show today. Bill is the founder and the convener of the Regional Housing Forum, which brought together uh, various individuals and organizations who wanted to look at how to deal with the issue of affordable housing, making, housing, making sure people uh, of lesser means can continue to live here. And, and Bill, uh, the reason I mention this is, number of weeks ago on this show, uh, we talked briefly about affordable housing, and I made a comment uh, that uh, although a lot of people would like to see housing uh, remain affordable for vast uh, uh, populations in Atlanta, it felt to me like a losing battle, like developers were always going to win out and we were going to see ever more expensive housing in the city. You contacted me and said, not so fast, Nigat. <laughs> Why did you say that? And tell me about your interest in the subject. <laughs> well, I did. I did call you on that, Bill. I thought, uh, you know, uh, often it's a matter of attitude about how we talk about these things. So if you start out with a negative question, but this is a tough subject. Let me just say, uh, you know, most people know me from the food bank and fighting hunger, but you know, five or six years into the food bank, one of the things I realized is that everybody who we were feeding, we were feeding tens of thousands, now millions of people, were paying too much for rent. So I gathered up some folks at the food bank to say, let's talk about housing. They're a very related issue. And we could make this connection to, uh, you know, to a number of issues that we're facing, I think, including crime. But we started back in 1984 the housing forum we called it the atlanta housing forum met every month for over 20 years and then again realized that it really was a regional and in this case a state issue it's something we're all facing as the population grows uh, as income disparities grow that it's something we've got to talk about and address and that's why we have two great experts here to talk about it but that conversation has continued through the years and uh, we traditionally do uh, a mayoral forum. We did it four years ago, and we did it a few weeks ago uh, to really ask those who would like to be mayor what their commitment is. Um, okay, thank you for that. Um, Ashani Omar, I, I saved you for last for a very specific reason. Um, uh, you, by the way, are the executive director of the Atlanta Affordable Housing Fund. Um, I think you have, what, a $25 million fund that was developed by working with real estate professionals and others as a pot of money to help assure that there is money for people who would like to remain in the city of Atlanta, even if they don't have the individual means to do it. Is that a fair way of saying that? That is a fair way of saying that. We are still working to get to that $25 million. In fact, our, our goal is to close out the fund at the end of this year with about $20 million, um, and we're just about $4 million away from that. But, yes, um, it's, it's so interesting when we think about affordable housing, um, how foundational it is in every other aspect of our lives. Bill, um, Bill just mentioned how um, even, you know, from a, a – food perspective, thinking about how much you're spending on your 
your rent or um, to pay for your house will impact your ability um, or inability to um, secure all the other essentials you need. And so for uh, the Atlanta Affordable Housing Fund, we were able to come together, really driven by a lot of um, private sector leaders, um, to say, how can we bring more folks to this conversation um, to ensure that uh, we can accelerate the supply of affordable housing? And that comes in many forms, whether it's uh, through single-family homeownership or rental or multifamily, um, or what I would say probably most importantly, um, preservation, um, as we look to stop the, the hemorrhaging that we see in our uh, local market. So the reason I said I specifically uh, introduced you last is because I want to talk, I want to define the problem uh, that needs solving uh, as a starting point. And, and the Atlanta Affordable Housing Fund website uh, lays out some really important data in that respect. Let me uh, share it with our listeners. Uh, you say on your website that there are 340,000 households in Atlanta, a staggering number, where uh, people are paying more than 30% of their income on housing and that that is unsustainable. You say that um, Atlanta is in the top five of uh, cities, uh, most expensive cities in the country for moderate income households. Um, and you uh, say that we need something like 10,000 affordable housing units every year for the next 10 years to uh, try to address this issue. Um, and finally, that between the years 2011 and 2016, while wages for people in the city went up 10 percent, the average rent increased 48 percent. So. Um, Shani, the ball's in your court, and then I want everyone to weigh in on this. That's a significant problem. That is a significant problem. Um, and in fact, uh, what is not on our website, but what is also a fact, is that uh, we are currently the fourth uh, fastest gentrifying uh, city in the country. And so if we don't find a way to either, uh, well, the short answer I'll say is, we need supply. That is, that's sort of where this is going. Um, we're losing a lot of units, um, about a thousand on an annual basis, um, and we need to accelerate the number of units that we are bringing um, into this market because what we're finding is there's um, downward pressure that uh, will continue to impact our region and and those who are of less means will not have options available if we are not supplying those options. So we are, in fact, um, threatened, I think, threatened from an economic perspective. You know, when we look at how we can remain competitive as a region, uh, if we are not all at the table to help address this issue, that will impact um, our ability to be uh, competitive. Uh, Sarah, a, a question. A question for you, uh, Shani. Um, can, you know, said we're the fourth in fourth place with um, uh, gentrifying, and, and I think we're always interested in, uh, you know, where does Atlanta fit in compared to other cities? But is there? A, a, I mean, I, I guess I'd ask for what's a what's a bad example out there where we would want to say, hey, that's a city that we don't want to be like, and what's a good example out there of a place? Yeah where we, we could say we'd like to be more like that? Hmm. That's a great question. 
Um, well, so I, my husband uh, happens to work for uh, Clorox Corporation, which is located in Oakland, and um, we've done um, have numbers, of, uh, lots of friends there, and we've traveled quite a bit. But um, every time we're there, it is um, you're very much aware of what has happened to um, a city like Oakland um, that used to be the city that people would move to from San Francisco um, to to find more affordable um, options. And um, I think when I think of when we think of the downward pressure, what that becomes is more homelessness ultimately, right? So if we're not keeping up with the supply, if we're not um, finding opportunities to um, strengthen, you know, wage growth, um, then there, there are many factors that will impact um, our ability to, ter- to turn into a city that has a, a much broader homelessness issue than uh, we currently see uh, here in Atlanta. Sarah? It, it is a great question. Um, you know, the, a lot of the numbers you referenced are some work that several of us did together about five years ago. To answer in part that question, what problem are we trying to solve? What's the magnitude of it? Um, at that time, this was five years ago, we said we were losing 1,500 affordable homes in the city alone on an annual basis. And that number looks more like 5,000 in the five core counties, which we defined as Fulton, DeKalb, Todd, Gwinnett, and Clayton. That's where 80% of our jobs are, so that's a really important thing. Um, In those last five years, the Urban Land Institute said in our Emerging Trends report last year, the housing affordability crisis will explode without intervention. Those are pretty inflammatory words from the Urban Land Institute, explode without intervention. But part of the reason to define the problem is to say, and we were having this conversation the other day, what tool do we need to solve which problem? We were suffering from this, it's overwhelming, we don't know what to do, how do we begin to chip away at it? And we kind of had everyone and their sister saying, here's the solution. The reality is there is no silver bullet. We need literally 20 different solutions, working in coordination, talking to each other, figuring out how the Atlanta Affordable Housing Fund can support Atlanta Housing Authority, how um, we can grow the nonprofit sector. And I think in that respect, there are cities that have done a good job in building the infrastructure needed, the ecosystem, if you will, to get everyone working together. There was a group of us that went to Seattle to understand how they were working together, public, private, nonprofit. I think Austin, Texas does really good work in that respect. Um, The reality is there is not a single city that cracks the code on this. Um, And, you know, I think that's why you have major proposals as part of the Building Back Better, um, you know, federal policy to say, you know, this is a national problem. Um, And so I think it's about making sure that we are working in a coordinated way and being really clear about which policy or funding solutions can. Uh, Sarah, we just had a big hit on your uh, phone, and I'm not sure quite what it was. Can the rest of you hear me okay? Yes. Uh, Bill Bowling. Okay, Bill, let me bring you in. Um, There are lots of different uh, individuals and, and groups of people who are affected by uh, their inability to afford housing in uh, Atlanta and and in other cities that face this problem. So let me just take on one of them and ask you to address it. Um, It's what you call legacy residents of neighborhoods. So 
I, I mean, I think that's self-explanatory. You're talking now about people who have perhaps owned a home in a neighborhood in the city of Atlanta for many years and suddenly find what? That property taxes are driving them out of the community because they no longer can afford to pay uh, the increased property tax because the uh, uh, community around them is transforming into upper income. Talk a little bit about the impact of what you call legacy residents on this prop issue. I think the place to look right now as a model is over on the west side, which is a neighborhood that's being justified. Microsoft just bought 80 acres over there. It's talking about several hundred, 800 workers. So there's a lot of people that want to move there. So one of the things we realized through the West Side Future Fund is we've really got to save the folks who have been there all these years. They actually set up a legacy fund. I think it was about $3 million, identified everybody in the neighborhood who had been there through the years. They're usually elderly folks. This is their only asset. And guaranteed that as long as they live there, their taxes would not go up. That's a model that we can replicate around the region and one that we really need to pay attention to because that really defines the character of a neighborhood. Uh, I know I moved to Decatur in the 80s, and it has completely justified since I've been here because they didn't get ahead of that curve. So it's something, as Sarah talked about, there are many, many different tools. This is one that we actually know an answer to, and we could replicate. So, Shani? Yeah, I would I would agree. I think um, the West Side Future Fund has um, really set forth a, a holistic approach um, and a, a really unique model that um, focuses not only, again, on like single family um, and creating pathways to home ownership, um, not only for um, primarily for legacy residents, but also um, making sure that there are other housing options available um, on the multifamily side as well as the single family rental side. They are also partnering with um, both nonprofit developers and mission driven developers. Um, to come and help to scale that work. Um, and this is something that, you know, the Atlanta Affordable Housing Fund, we're, we're only two years old. We were launched back in 2020. Um, but, you know, as we look to uh, scale and accelerate the supply of affordable housing, it is, it is those types of partnerships, um, also partnering with uh, our local governmental agencies, we focus on the five-county region, um, to find out how we all sort of leverage um, our resources to to come together. It's those capital stacks that oftentimes get stuck, uh, and a developer might need one slither um, in order to move forward. That oftentimes will uh, delay a project. And so we are really trying to bring forth flexible capital to help um, reduce the friction that um, developers often um, encounter as they're looking to to get their uh, projects off the ground. Uh, Kevin, let's explain something, because both Bill and Ashani have mentioned the West Side Future Fund. Um, and, and let's point out exactly what that is. When when uh, Arthur Blank uh, decided that he was going to invest, along with help from the state of Georgia, in building Mercedes-Benz Stadium, uh, it meant the displacement of a couple of churches. It meant uh, that there would be some individual – there were streets – uh, that were impacted in that neighborhood down there around Mercedes-Benz. Family homes were impacted. 
and the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation and others uh, came in and made a commitment to trying to take advantage of the focus on that community and with uh, people like Ashani, the Urban Land Institute, and Bill Bowling was on the board of the Blank Foundation, I believe, uh, to say we can create a model for how we can preserve these neighborhoods to some extent. Right, Kevin? Yeah, and it, 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 as Bill pointed out, it's been uh, uh, widely supported by a, a lot of leaders and philanthropists in the community, which is probably the most important thing, that it got people's attention. And uh, there are things happening, and uh, I know that we regularly report on things. Uh, Bill, I, I, I've, I, you guys have thrown a lot of, around a lot of dollar figures, so I'm going to ask you a, a question of that bet. There really isn't uh, an easy answer for it, but you've spent your career in Atlanta answering hard-to-answer questions, so I feel okay <laughs> asking. Um, um, how much, from a monetary standpoint, a dollar standpoint, how big is this problem? And when I ask that question, I mean, what kind of investment at what scale would be required? If you could wave a magic wand, what would it take? Well, my goodness, why don't we start with something easy, Kevin? I don't... <laughs> uh, you know, I think literally billions of dollars to build a city. I, I think it's important. Look at the adjoining neighborhood, Grove Park, where Microsoft just bought. Housing costs have gone up over 125% over the last three years. But let's just don't talk about the west side. Look at Communities like College Park and East Point, which are really starting to develop. Or as we look around the state, Savannah's going to have to deal with this, and Columbus and Valdosta have to deal with this. So these are tools, if this is a priority, and it really is a priority to keep the character of a neighborhood intact and, and to create a place that we would all want to live, that this is a particular tool to use. But, you know, we look at it in a broader way. Uh, if we don't address housing, we've got to address wages. If people don't make a living wage, they can't pay their rent. You notice the governor just put in money for child care, a major issue to every family with children that they can't afford child care and rent, as Ashana talked about earlier. So this is really a, a larger puzzle. We're talking about housing today, but if we don't address housing, we're not uh, going to have that quality of life uh, for these other issues either. Um, okay, let me uh, uh, interrupt the conversation just for a moment. We've got to take a break. Uh, when we come back, I, I want to ask you all a fundamental question before moving on to some of the goals that you all share in terms of uh, how we can deal with this problem. But the, but the fundamental question I want to ask is going to be, well, what's so bad about gentrification? Isn't it making the city a better place in many ways? And when you have gentrification, what do we lose? We'll talk about those questions and more after these messages. We're talking about affordable housing in the city of Atlanta and beyond in the state of Georgia with our panel today. 
Uh, we have Bill Bowling, who is the founder of the Regional Housing Forum, and you know him, I think. Most people do as the founder of the Atlanta Community Food Bank, which from which he built a network of food banks around the state that continue to be uh, helping to feed people in the state of Georgia. Sarah Kirsch, executive director of the Urban Land Institute Atlanta. Oshani Omar, executive director of the Atlanta Affordable Housing Fund. And of course, my partner on Thursday is Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Kevin, um, I want to read a quote from Matt Bronfman, who is the, I can't remember if the title's president or CEO of Jamestown Properties, one of the biggest developers in, uh, it, certainly in Atlanta and beyond. They developed Pont City Market. Matt was also responsible for Chelsea Market in, in New York, which really transformed the meatpacking district in New York, just as Pod City Market has done it here. Um, and, and Matt's a guy who's considered, Kevin, to have a social conscience. Uh, I don't think he's thought of as a rapacious developer. But he said this recently. People throw out gentrification like it's a bad word, and that's an oversimplification. You want to have some degree of gentrification because you need to improve your tax base and support public services like arts, education, and parks. So some degree of gentrification is absolutely necessary if you're going to be part of a successful uh, city, Kevin. And there's the tension between, you know, how, how much gentrification that does give you a bigger tax base uh, as opposed to helping people who you really want to preserve in your communities. Yeah, I do think, Bill, and I, I'm really interested to, to hear uh, what our folks uh, have to say, and I'm going to kick it to Sarah next to just give her a warning <laughs> that I'm coming her way. Um, but, I mean, there's good news in this, right? People want to live in the city of Atlanta. I mean, and they, it's an extremely desirable place to live. And there are a lot of cities that would love to have that problem, I suppose. And um, I do think we've learned, though, that, hey, let's just let the market guide us. Whatever the market does is the answer. I, I do think people have come around to that is really not going to lead us to where we want to go. But on the other hand, I mean, how much should government or uh, a philanthropist well, intervene, Sarah. I mean, how how far should it go? How far should it go? I think we have a <laughs> we have some runway there that I don't think that's what we need to to worry about at this point. And look, you know, Bill said earlier, um, you know, we, it's about neighborhood character. It's about you know the quality of place. And I don't think any of us want a homogenous place. We also recognize that deep concentrations of poverty serve no one. Right? That um, the pathways out of poverty are more difficult when you are in a community of concentrated poverty. So you want mixed income development. Um, you have practical issues like, I don't know if y'all remember, there was a sort of minor weather event a few years ago where schools had to shut down and the superintendent of Decatur <laughs> schools and then the later the superintendent of Atlanta schools said, hey, if our teachers could live in our communities, we could keep schools open. I mean, they're really practical issues about preserving affordable housing. Um, I think the reality is, is it's more of a, a fundamental, you know, moral question of who gets to participate in the upside of investment, right? Do people who are there get to participate? Do they get to stay or are they considered that it's not for them? And that happens in, you know, transactional ways, but it also happens in how development's done. And I think, you know, what we hear across the country is particularly in rapidly changing urban neighborhoods, people saying, hey, I feel like development's being done to me and not with me. 
I feel like these plans and this investment is happening like behind closed doors, and I want a seat at the table to know, um, you know, how to how to be part of that. And so I think the how is just as important as the what. Yeah, that, I think that question of participation, and that's that's really back to the point about legacy residents, right? I mean, they have hung on, they have made the place the way it is, they have maintained their home, and all of a sudden, they're being forced out. Bill, when we talk about climate change on this show, one of the things we always discuss is the fact that we're running out of time, that action better happen sooner rather than later, uh, because uh, we're not going to solve the problem by waiting another five years. To what extent is gentrification in the city of Atlanta happening at a pace that immediate action is necessary? The decisions we make today are going to affect us for the next generation. So oftentimes, as a political figure where you've got to make a hard decision, a policy decision, it usually is the day of the decision. Everybody, you know, I'm afraid of gentrification, I'm afraid of zoning. But the decisions we're making today are going to affect, and we have to project that for what we want Atlanta to be. You know, a lot of young people are coming here. We are surrounded by universities. The tech community has moved in looking for talent. We've got to provide housing for those folks. But a lot of those young people, when they have children, are going to move out of those apartments and want a home. So that, that happens over and over again in a community. Kevin, you're absolutely right. Other cities would die for the, <laughs> for the situation that we're in. We're in a very good situation. But we really have to look at it as whole cloth. We have to really address all of these things at the same time. It really was the impetus of the housing forum. How do we get around the table and quit getting beyond ain't it awful and pointing fingers at each other to figure out how does public and private work together? What are the assets that we can bring to the table? There's plenty of money looking for investments now. Uh, what we have to do is make the right investments and really take care of the folks who have been living here for a long time. Uh, Ashani, um, let's look at another aspect of all this. Um, there's only so much. Uh, the Fourth Ward, which is a, a, a perfect example of gentrification. I mean, you right. m- most of us can't even begin to afford to live in a neighborhood that at one point, even maybe certainly 10 years ago, if not five years ago, would have been relatively affordable for us. Um, so so that's, uh, that's an example of land use that's already completely uh, occupied and has been gentrified. But one mm-hmm. of the issues that all of you are looking at and one of the solutions you're all looking at is – how much public land may be out there? Would a survey of public land in the city of Atlanta show that there is enough uh, property out there that you could build affordable housing stock on that hasn't been snapped up by developers in a neighborhood like the Fourth Ward? Absolutely. Um, we've been hearing about this um, as of lately with all of the forums um, happening um, between the, the land that is available, um, the many acres available through the Atlanta housing, but also um, just city-owned land that um, could certainly be a, a guiding point. And um, one thing that I did want to say as we talk about this this um, gentrification issue, and I appreciate it, Kevin's point, is um, it has got a bad rep, but I think it goes back to the pace at which we see gentrification occurring. And 
um, I think we've got to reframe how we uh, approach uh, development uh, in any neighborhood. Every single neighborhood should be aspiring to be a great neighborhood. And I think a lot of that uh, focuses on how we make inclusive gentrification happen. How do we create every neighborhood to be a high-resource neighborhood that is desirable um, while balancing and preserving um, uh, the, the culture as well as uh, residents who have helped to build that neighborhood? And um, I think what has happened in neighborhoods like at Old Force Ford is you, in the blink of the eye, you know, it has, it's turned over and we have not had, um, we've not been intentional about making sure that um, residents have an opportunity to remain um, in those, in the neighborhoods where they uh, would like to stay or where they would like to raise their home and, and can be a beneficiary of, you know, all the great um, resources that might be coming um, to to that neighborhood. Yeah, the, the public land question is huge. That's low hanging fruit, right? Um, we someone refers to public lands and public assets like buildings as the hidden wealth of cities, right? It's right here. Um, we should be leveraging it. And you know, for for all the listeners out there, if there is anything being developed on public land in your community. I challenge you to say, how could housing be part of this? There's a library in Silver Spring, Maryland, where they built affordable senior housing right next to the New County Public Library. Great, right? Like what a great community resource or even a fire station in Washington, DC, where above the fire station, they built volleyball courts as a sound barrier and then did affordable workforce housing above the fire station, right? So we can walk and chew gum we can talk housing while we talk other community resources. And, you know, we're, we're all biased here. We think we need a housing first strategy for all of this, but really it should be on the table for every public asset and resource that we're talking about developing. Uh, Bill, boy, it, it is fair to say, right, that there are a lot of important influential entities in our community who do care about this, right? I mean, MARTA, is doing development, Absolutely. the Beltline, the list goes on. How big is the challenge for a developer to include affordable housing in a project and still, I guess, make the money that they have to make? Well, it's a challenge, but uh, the, the issue is just making the rules for everybody at the same time. A developer figures out the numbers. So uh, I know in talking to Phil Tag from Amway, uh, you know, who's a big, big housing apartment developer, Phil told me one time, uh, we have no problem with inclusionary zoning. We have no problem with you guaranteeing, you know, that 15, 20% would be affordable as long as everybody has to do it. So Sarah's point, I think, is a good one. Uh, when you're trying to tackle a problem, you first start with who wants us to who wants us to solve this problem, and what are the assets that we've got? I would point us to House ATL, and uh, Bill, I sent you some material on this. House ATL was an effort, and Sarah, was. we've all been very involved in it, where we brought public-private sector together to have real conversations and to listen to each other. A developer has to work five or six years out. They have to assume the... <laughs> what the interest rate's gonna be, the land use, what uh, the policies may be. So it's hard 
it's very difficult for a developer. But I think if we stay in communication and figure out how to leverage, if we can leverage the public act, uh, asset with private, what Shauna's doing, uh, we're going to make a lot more progress. And you can see that in the House ATL recommendations, which I think we could use in any city in Georgia. Um, yeah, I t- let, let's do this as a matter of fact. Sam Burmistaz, let, let's, let's post on our social media the uh, recommendations of House ATL, since we can't go through all of them uh, within the time we have on this show. But I think it'll be of interest to a lot of our uh, listeners. Um, Ashani, uh, one of the things that we've kind of touched on here and, and is part of the recommendations in a broader way, this is not the money part of the recommendations. Uh, this is more about how we expand the pool of people who understand the problem. Expand understanding among regional leaders, policymakers, and professionals on how to address housing affordability across income bands through educational resources and case studies, highlighting successes and results. That's just one of the recommendations. How is that working? Are, are you, as you develop your fund, this $25 million fund you're uh, working towards acquiring, um, are you finding an increasing number of leaders, whether they're philanthropic leaders, whether they're uh, business leaders, nonprofit leaders, are they getting this? Absolutely. Um, so we've, we've talked a lot about um, House APL, and we're fortunate enough to have um, Sarah, uh, who has been orchestrating and, and leading that work for several years now. Uh, one of the amazing um, outcomes of House APL has been the Funders Collective, which has brought together um, a um, amazing uh, group of uh, stakeholders from the nonprofit side, the social impact investing side, uh, philanthropic leaders, as well as uh, governmental partners and um, a number of our our local uh, financial institutions who come together and uh, and really focus on uh, coordinating investments that go into affordable housing. I like to think of it as a a bit of a shark tank where we will invite uh, developers um, to present their projects uh, who are in need, who have gap financing needs, um, or may just be looking to assemble uh, the the financing resources for their projects. Um, But we also have an opportunity to really coordinate amongst ourselves um, and also just lift up what the need looks like. I think a lot of um, partners who are now at the table have not necessarily had housing as a number one priority. Um, and uh, this has been a very educational uh, moment to say, hey, here's the need. Here are concrete um, opportunities for you to come at the table. Um, and, and Atlanta has been fortunate like that. I, I certainly lifted up as a best practice that uh, other uh, communities can uh, could probably um, exchange knowledge on. And I think what's so remarkable about the Funders Collective is it is a solution to a problem that there were a lot of people who wanted to do something about housing because they were suddenly realizing that anything they cared about was made better by investing in housing. You care about educational outcomes, you need stable housing for kids because when they move more than once in a year, you've got a major problem. You care about health outcomes, you need nurses who can live close enough to hospitals that they can get there, right? I mean, it's it's one of these issues that people have said, I know if we have better housing solutions, 
it'll pay dividends, if you will, to all of these other things that we're concerned about for our community, like Bill mentioned with, you know, access to healthy foods. Um, but they didn't have a way to do it, right? It's complicated. We could spend all day talking about this. And what the Funders Collective has done is give a platform for people to do it without having to go through all of the relationship building, understanding all of the deals. Um, and that's been so encouraging the last few years. You know, it's easy to get discouraged, but um, seeing how many people are willing to invest and be part of the solutions. And, you know, Kevin, to your question on, on developers, having private sector developers at the table who are by design problem solvers and innovators um, has been really valuable to, to packing problems. Um, and that's a, that's a real place of, that's a real bright spot, if you will. Okay, Sarah, help us, just give us several examples of how money from a funder's collective is being distributed. Who's getting that money? What are they uh, uh, committing to doing? so that they are eligible for for funding. Talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, I'll kick it off and then I may ask Ashani to jump in. Um, <laughs> so the Funders Collective is, you know, Ashani described it as a shark tank. And that is, for all of us who watch it, that is really what it is. It is people with, with opportunities either to build, you know, home ownership or preserve an existing community or build new is more typical, coming before a group of funders, public, private, and nonprofit, and saying, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm at the, um, we should use a baseball analogy instead of a football analogy. You know, it's, <laughs> it's the top of the night, um, and I just can't, you know, close this. And who can, who can help me here? You know, Department of Community Affairs will be there and say, oh, you know what, we're working on this new program and this may be able to help you. Or Ashani's fund will say, that's a great fit for me. So this is a mechanism, if you will, to fill those gaps so that projects that otherwise might be sitting on the sidelines and not being preserved or not being created can move more quickly and hopefully produce more units to get to that 2,500 plus a year. That's right, Sarah. Ashani, uh, Ed, Ed, Ed. Go ahead. Yeah, that, that's right, Sarah. Um, when we first um, launched the Atlanta Affordable Housing Fund, uh, we immediately uh, uh, stepped into the Funders Collective uh, platform and we're fortunate enough to partner with two nonprofits that um, were able to present to the Funders Collective, uh, one being uh, the Atlanta Neighborhood Development Partnership. And um, at the time, they were just launching a, a single family preservation initiative um, where they were focused on uh, basically growing and scaling their single-family rental portfolio. For many years, ANDP um, has focused on uh, creating for sale um, a single-family uh, product, but was really focused on building out a portfolio for longer-term affordability. And um, they were able to secure uh, senior debt, um, but also present it to the Funders Collective and we were able to partner with um, Invest Atlanta, which provided uh, about $2 million in um, um, funding. And we were able to come to the table as well and um, really help them blend down the cost of their capital um, to be able to actually acquire more units, over 60 units. Okay, we got more to talk about, but we got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back in just a moment.
So, Kevin Riley, as usual on this show, we have a lot more to aspects of the conversation that we could could have and just aren't going to have time to deal with all of them. So just let me throw out a couple things that we're not going to get to in any depth uh, in terms of affordable housing. I mean, number one, what are we doing about evictions for people whose rent have skyrocketed? What do we do about the homeless situation and where do they play a role in all of this? How do we increase... Uh, production of affordable houses in for black Atlantans uh, 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 who are, are dealing with this issue. I mean, Kevin, there are just so many aspects uh, to this that uh, continue to be worth looking at in the weeks and months ahead. Yeah, in fact, um, it's such a, and I think all of our panelists have acknowledged, it's a complicated issue with many, many ways to um, understand it and no silver bullets. So, I, you know, I was going to ask, uh, I don't know who wants to jump in. I've been picking on Bill, so maybe I'll pick on him again. But, <laughs> I mean, Bill, you know, one of the things that I, I've watched you do as you explain complicated issues and motivate people to deal with them is tell a success story. I mean, so, so give us something that, that you point to that you say, look, here, here's here's how it could work. Here, here's a thing that's happening that, that will help you understand this and perhaps motivate you to, to work on it with us. Well, I could name projects, but I think more importantly, Kevin, we would talk about the process that we're in. Uh, oftentimes, and I and I uh, called Bill on this, we, we feel like we're overwhelmed and can't solve the problem. We've talked about things that we're doing today, the Funders Collective, the uh, House ATL. Uh, we have, and, and you look at Georgia Tech and Georgia State and and uh, Atlanta universities, all those, we have innovation, we have motivation, there's an urgency to it, there's a conversation at House ATL, at the Housing Forum, there's conversations just as we talked about with the funders collective. So there are processes in place that actually will move the needle. Uh, I don't think we have to feel hopeless. I don't feel like uh, it's too complicated for us or it takes too many levels of, of funding. I think we're at a very hopeful stage in the city. And uh, there are projects to point to, but I think more importantly, we have the right people around the table. And that is the key. We, we did the same thing when we bought the Olympics in or we try to solve any problem in the city. You got to get the right partners around the table with an innovative plan. So I feel very hopeful. I hope people will join this conversation at the Housing Forum and other places. And I hope people around the state uh, will continue this conversation. Um, Sarah Nishani, uh, we're short on time, but but and we don't want to talk about specific candidates running for mayor of Atlanta. But I do think it's worth pointing out that uh, Mayor Bottoms, when uh, she uh, took office, committed to a $1 billion fund to address uh, uh, affordable housing. Uh, some of the candidates running have agreed that they would like to continue that. Um, it, it, is, are you hopeful that that whoever becomes the next mayor of Atlanta is looking at affordable housing in a significant way, Sarah, and then Ashani? I'm very hopeful. Um, if anyone tuned in to the housing forum that, that Bill moderated a couple weeks ago, the difference of discourse from four years ago felt light years apart. Right. Four years ago was when Mayor Bottoms made the billion dollar pledge at the housing forum. And there were a lot of ideas, but nothing felt particularly well baked. 
Um, right now, you have serious proposals from all leading candidates, and I think you also have a recognition that housing is part of addressing the systemic issues that we care about, like crime. Um, so it's a question of priorities. This is not a question of if we can get it done, it's a question of leadership. Agreed. Courageous leadership is um, just the thing that inspires me the most right now. And I think making sure we're bringing innovative solutions to this conversation is important. Um, we've seen uh, the candidates lift up uh, and celebrate things like community land trust models and preservation and, and a ton of things, um, making sure that there is leadership at the top level in their cabinet. Um, and I think that is that is going to help us unlock some of the bottlenecks that we've struggled with. So this, yeah, we're I'm very very hopeful. We are out of time uh, for today. Bill Bowling, you got about a 20 second uh, of finish you want to give us? Well, the number one issue that citizens said was crime, and of course that is number one issue. Education, the environment, all of these things are related to housing, so they are part of one call. All right. I knew Bill Bowling would get the last word, Kevin Riley. There, how, how would it be otherwise? Thank you all for a terrific conversation. <laughs> really happy to have you, Ashani Omar of the Affordable Atlanta Affordable Housing Fund, Sarah Kirsch, yeah. Urban Land Institute, uh, Bill Bowling, the convener of all things uh, about uh, what's happening <laughs> in Atlanta, including the Regional Housing Forum. And Kevin Riley, thank you. Good luck tonight with your forum on gun violence with the mayor's candidates, Kevin. And Sarah, yours tomorrow on issues of importance to the Urban Land Institute. Uh, that's it for us for today's Political Rewind. A new show again tomorrow, of course. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask when you're inside and close to other people. And go get the flu shot that will supplement your having, of course, already been vaccinated for COVID. Take care, everybody. time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.